time of year, as, Christ, as Christmas draws near, it's inevitable that many of us will be asked to answer two very different but equally difficult questions. The first question asked of parents and grandparents uh, by their children is, does Santa Claus exist? Now, for those who have stumbled over this question or one similar to it, I came across the following. It's one father's answer to his children, and as an engineer, you'll quickly notice that he takes a somewhat scientific approach in his answer. He says, children, number one, no known species of reindeer can fly. But there are 300,000 species of living organisms yet to be classified, and while most of these are insects and germs, this does not completely rule out flying reindeer, which only Santa has ever seen. Said second, there are 2 billion children, persons under 18 in the world, but since Santa doesn't appear to handle the Muslim, Hindu, Jewish, and Buddhist children, that reduces the workload to 15% of the total, or 378 million. Now, at an average census rate of 3.5 children per household, that's 91.8 million homes. One presumes there's at least one good child in each. (laughs) Three, Santa has 31 hours of Christmas to work with thanks to the different time zones and the rotation of the earth, assuming he travels east to west, which would be the most logical. This works out to 822.6 visits per second. This is to say that for each Christian household with good children, Santa has one one hundred thousandth of a second to park, hop out of the sleigh, jump down the chimney, fill the stockings, distribute the remaining presents under the tree, eat whatever snacks have been left, get back up to the chimney, get back into the sleigh, move on to the next house. Assuming that each of these 91.8 million stops are evenly distributed around the earth, which of course we know that to be false, but for the purposes of our calculations, children, we will accept. We are now talking about 0.78 miles per household, a total trip of 75.5 million miles, not counting stops to do what most of us must do at least once every 31 hours. This means that Santa's sleigh is moving at 550 miles per second, three times the, sound of, uh, th- three times the speed of sound. For purposes of comparison, the fastest man-made vehicle on Earth, the Ulysses space probe, moves at a pokey 27.4 miles per second. So a conventional reindeer can run tops 15 miles an hour. So think about it, kids. Number four, the payload on the sleigh adds another interesting element. Assuming that each child gets nothing more than a medium-sized Lego set, which is about two pounds, the sleigh is carrying 321,300 tons, not counting Santa, who is invariably described as being overweight. On land, conventional reindeer can pull no more than 300 pounds. Even granted that flying reindeer, C.1, could pull 10 times the normal weight, we cannot do the job with eight or nine. We need 214,000 reindeer. This increases the payload, not counting the weight of the sleigh, to 355,430 tons. And for comparison's sake, that's four times the weight of the Queen Elizabeth. So finally... We have 353,000 tons traveling at 650 miles per second, which would create an enormous air resistance, or as we call it in our business, friction. And this heat will, this heat will heat the reindeer up in the same fashion as spacecrafts re-entering the Earth's atmosphere. <laughs> so the lead pair of reindeer will absorb 14.3 quintillion joules of energy per second each. 
In short, they will burst into flames almost instantaneously, exposing the reindeer behind them and create deafening sonic booms in their wake. The entire reindeer team will be vaporized within 4.26 thousandths of a second. Santa, meanwhile, will be subjected to centrifugal forces 17,500 times greater than gravity. A 250-pound Santa, which seems ludicrously slim, by the way, would be pinned to the back of the sleigh by 4,315,000 pounds of force. In conclusion, children, if Santa ever did deliver presents on Christmas Eve, he's dead now. So I, I hope that helps any of you who are looking for an answer to that very difficult question. On a much more serious note, I mentioned two questions that are inevitable this time of year. The second question is, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? It's one of the most significant questions that can be asked because one's answer to this question determines whether heaven or hell awaits in the future. Who is Jesus? Just say the name Jesus. I was asked, I was asked at a, um, uh, the Mighty Ducks had a uh, Ducks and Tucks night the other night, and uh, it was a fundraiser for cystic fibrosis when I was asked to do the invocation. And having been in that setting before in that environment, I know that there is no other name like Jesus to cause a stir when his name is mentioned in a public setting. Jesus, has anyone's name ever generated so much emotion and difference of opinion? Who is Jesus Christ? Is he a religious leader? Is he a good man? Is he a prophet, a misunderstood teacher? Is he a martyr or a paranoid with delusions of grandeur? Is he a liar, is he a deceiver? Carpenter turned preacher, a Jew who claimed to be the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Who is Jesus? See, the greatest problem people have about Jesus Christ is the claim Christians make that he is God. Muslims speak highly of Jesus and list him among the 124,000 prophets sent by God to various cultures. He's in good company with people like Abraham and Moses and Mohammed, among others. But to them, Jesus is not divine. He is not the Son of God, and he is not God. Judaism sees Jesus as either an extremist, false messiah, or a good but martyred Jewish rabbi. Many Jews don't consider Jesus at all. And they're deeply troubled over the assertion that Christians make that Jesus is Israel's promised Messiah and that he is God in human flesh. Mormons, who form one of today's largest cults, speak quite highly of Jesus Christ. In fact, they like to use his name on the front of their buildings where they get, gather together and assemble. And in fact, they believe themselves to be true Christians. But to say that Jesus Christ is God in human flesh isn't acceptable to them, except in the sense that we can all become gods through our own efforts and by doing those things that church leaders determine to be those things that need to be done from a standpoint of good works. We earn our godhood according to their belief system. Jehovah Witnesses teach that Jesus Christ is not God and that before he lived on earth, he was Michael the archangel. 
and on earth he was just a man who lived a perfect life. Who is Jesus? Unification Church, Jesus was a perfect man, not God. Christian Science, Jesus was not the Christ, but a man who displayed the Christ idea. Scientology, Jesus is rarely mentioned, and the only time they mention him is just to make sure that everyone knows that he's not the creator of the universe. To Hindus, he is a teacher, a guru, but not God. Harry Krishna sees him as, an unimportant, as unimportant, and Western Buddhists view Jesus as merely an enlightened man. Who is Jesus, and what difference does it make? That'll be the heart of what we look at today. What evidence does the Bible give us that Jesus is, in fact, the Almighty God? Today, I want to share with you and focus our attention on the names that are given to Jesus throughout the pages of Scripture. And we need to recognize and understand that the names that are given to him prove that he is indeed God. Turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 1, where we find that the Bible clearly teaches, despite those who would tell us to the contrary, that Jesus Christ is God. John chapter 1. You know, John is a disciple whom Jesus loved. He knew Jesus probably better than anybody else on earth. He was the disciple who leaned against Jesus at the Last Supper. He was the disciple whom Jesus left his mother, Mary, to his care. John writes this, inspired by the Holy Spirit. He writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. He goes on to tell us in verse 14, And the word became flesh, and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. John goes on in verse 18 to say, No man has seen God at any time, the only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained him. You know, I'm amazed at those who claim to believe the Bible to be the inerrant, authoritative word of God continue to teach that Jesus is never called God anywhere in the Bible. In John chapter 1, Jesus, the word, was God. Not a God, not one of many gods, not a prophet, not a teacher, not a guru, not an enlightened man, not a perfect man from the standpoint of their definition, not one who held the Christ idea. The Bible says that Jesus is God. The word was God, not one, not one of many, not even the God. He doesn't even point out with a definite article, Jesus is the God, because you know why? There are no other gods. There's no sense, there's no reason to point out that Jesus is the God, one of many gods, because there are no other gods. Hero Israel will know this, the Bible clearly teaches, the Lord is one, there is only one God. And so when we look at this and realize this, the Bible tells us that in verse 14, that the word became flesh, that God became man, that the only begotten Son of God has made God known. He has placed God on display, and that's what he's saying. And the word became flesh. And he says, and he dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. We were able to see God through the person of Jesus Christ. And the word became flesh. 
you know, as we think about this and look at this, you know, in John chapter 4, Jesus said that, you know, God is, is spirit. And one day we'll worship him in spirit and truth, and such a day has come. But he said, no man has seen God at any time. But in the person of Jesus Christ, God was put on display so that man could behold him, his glory, as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. You know, Jesus Christ put God on display. The reason that Christmas is so significant is that God was put on display in the person of Jesus Christ. Emmanuel, God with us. God with us. You know, Jesus said in John chapter 14, he said that, you know, that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, for I and the Father am one. And, you know, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You know, in Jesus Christ, God was put on display so that all the world could see who God truly is. And in John chapter 20, turn with me ahead to the 20th chapter of John and see the response and the reaction of a, by the person by the name of Thomas. It says in verse 24 of John, of John chapter 20, but Thomas, one of the 12 called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. This was after his resurrection from the dead, and the other disciples were, therefore were saying to him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days again, his disciples were inside and Thomas was with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and he stood in their midst and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, reach here your finger and see my hands. Reach here your hand and put it into my side and, not, and be not unbelieving but believing. Thomas's answer is significant to the point that we're making and that's, it's very simply this. He said to him, my Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Many other signs, therefore, Jesus performed in the presence of the disciple, which are not written in this book. But these have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. That he is the Christ, the Son of God. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. But his response, his reaction was, my Lord and my God. Jesus Christ is God in human flesh. The Bible clearly teaches that. In Acts chapter 20, we see another account. As Paul, if you recall from our study through the book of Acts, Paul called the, uh, the elders from Ephesus, from Miletus, and he called for them in verse 17 and had them come so he could give final instructions to them. And the words that he shared were very significant as they relate to our topic. But in verse 17, we pick up in Acts chapter 20. And from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus. He called to him the elders of the church. And dropping down to verse 25, he said, And now behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will see my face no more. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. It says, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, notice carefully, which he purchased with his blood. God the Father did not give his life upon the cross. Jesus Christ did, and the blood that he shed purchased the church. And yet Paul clearly calls Jesus Christ God. It says, but God, which he purchased with his own blood. 
as we look at this, the Bible clearly teaches in the names that we see that he's given that he is called God. It's continually emphasized as truth throughout the word of God. Paul, as he was writing in Romans to those who had the privilege of being Jews, he said, whose are the fathers and of whom as concerning the flesh Christ came, who is over all God blessed forever. Amen. And we learned what we went through First and Second Timothy. In First Timothy, we, wrote, we read these words, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness, that God was manifest in the flesh, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up into glory. This Jesus, why do you stand staring into space? This Jesus who came, in the same way, he will come again says he was God manifest in the flesh. 1 Timothy 4.10, we read, because we trust in the living God who is the savior of all men. Especially those that, that believe. And you shall name him Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Titus writes, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and of our savior, Christ Jesus. In Hebrews 1.8, but under the sun he has said, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. John writes again in 1 John chapter 5, verse 20, and we know that the Son of God has come and hath given us an understanding that we may know him that is true, even his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Throughout the pages of the Bible, the Bible clearly teaches that Jesus Christ is God in human flesh. Who is Jesus and what difference does it make? It makes all the difference in the world from an eternal standpoint and even now. Who is Jesus? Who do you say that Jesus is? The evidence is clear that he's called God throughout all the passages that I shared with you up to this point. The Old Testament tells us of the Messiah who would come one day, the prophecy in Isaiah 9, 6, which many of you probably may even put on your Christmas cards or certainly you'll see them on some that come to your home. For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Jesus Christ is called clearly throughout the page of Scripture, Mighty God. See, a few years ago, while I was teaching a Bible study, and I believe it was with the Rams at the time, and that, at that particular time, not only the players came, but their, their wives or girlfriends or friends or whatever. And I was interrupted by a young lady who was there, and she said, excuse me, did, did I hear you right? And that's always an interesting question to ask, because you have to ask the next question. It depends on what you heard. <laughs> you know, did I just hear you right? Well, what did you hear? She said, I heard you just say that Jesus Christ is God. I said, well, if you heard that, then you heard me right. And she had this pause and this look on her face, and I said, what's the matter? She said, you know, that's the first time I've ever heard that in my life. Now, we had people that were from all over the world, literally, and working with the Ducks, it's an international sport, hockey. We've got people from, you know, all over Europe, all over the United States and Canada. And, you know, it's interesting as you get involved with other cultures to, to try to identify, that's the first time you've ever heard. They said, can I ask, where, where are you from? And uh, she, was, she, she was born and raised in the jungles of Brea, California. 
Brea, California. And she had never heard that Jesus Christ is God. We must never forget nor take for granted this mystery that has been revealed to us as God's people, that Jesus Christ is God in human flesh. His names prove that he's God, and the word was God, and the word became flesh, and he dwelt among us. The second thing that we find, a name that's given to him, is he's called, as, as was just mentioned, he's called the Son of God. The Son of God. Now, some people will say, well, if Jesus is the Son of God, then he can't be God. Let's just stop and think about it logically, rationally, you know, rationally, reasonably, you know, I have a son, his name is Ryan, Ryan is my son, and therefore Ryan is not me, and I am not Ryan. And that's the logic, that's the sequence, that's the thought process. You know, if Jesus Christ is the son of God, then he cannot be God, because God the Father is God, and then there's the son, and so they're two separate, distinct individuals. And it sounds reasonable, it sounds logical, but it's wrong. And the reason that it's wrong is that the problem that we have is that in the Greek language, there were two words that were used of a son or translated son. The first word is never used of Jesus Christ. The, the word technon indicating a child or a descendant of another. That word is never used once of Jesus Christ in the Bible. The Greek word used when Jesus is called the Son of God is spelled H-U-I-O-S, hoyos. It refers to the heir, the one who received an inheritance. In the Roman days, you could, if you chose, adopt a person as a son. You could go and take somebody off the streets, adopt them as a son, and they will become an heir or an inheritor of all that is rightfully yours. They carry all the same rights and all the same privileges. Anything that you're entitled to, they are also entitled to. They become equal. That's why in Romans chapter 8, as believers, we're looked upon as those who were adopted into the family of God. God, that we're adopted into the family of God. The word that is used of Jesus is the one that is used there of adoption, which simply means position or a co-equal with the Father. Jesus Christ is co-equal with God the Father as well as the Holy Spirit. And so that is the word that is used, and the people in Jesus' day understood quite well what was being said. Turn back to the Gospel of John. Gospel of John chapter 5 to show you by their reaction to the things that were said, they understood very clearly the message that I'm sharing with you right now. In John chapter 5, verses 8 through 18, we have the story of Jesus who healed a paralytic. He told him in verse 8, arise, take up your pallet and walk. And immediately the man became well and took up his pallet and he began to walk. Now it was on the Sabbath day. It says, therefore, the Jews were saying to him who was cured, it is the Sabbath. It's not permissible for you to carry your pallet. Can you imagine just how cold and sensitive, legalistic people are that, you know, they look at the laws of God and they don't see the spirit or the compassion of God? Here's a man who had never walked in 38 years. He was miraculously healed by Jesus Christ. He's carrying the pallet. The pallet was basically a stretcher that they used to carry him around his family or friends to get from one place to the other. Here he is carrying this pallet, and instead of going, you're walking, dude, you're walking, Whoa, how'd that happen? Instead of concentrating on the miracle that God did in his life, the first thing they focus on, you're not allowed to carry your own pallet. It's the Sabbath. What's your problem? 
I mean, if you've ever been exposed to that type of legalism, you know exactly how hurtful that can be. It's like, man, he said he answered them. Who, who, he who made me well was the one who said, take up your pallet and walk. If you're accusing me of violating the Sabbath, you've got to remember that I was commanded by the one who healed me to take up my pallet and walk. So I must obey God, is what he's saying, rather than man. Because God told me to pick it up and walk. God healed me. You know what? I'm more concerned about doing what he wants me to do than all the little trivial, stupid things that you're stumbling over. Is basically what he's saying. And, 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 and then he said, but he who was healed did not know who it was. For Jesus had slipped away while, they were, while there was a crowd in that place. It says, afterward, Jesus found them in the temple and said to him, behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse may befall you. But I'll tell you what, if that's not a simple verse to help us understand a spiritual truth, and that is this. You know what? Do what's right before God and all things will go well. Do what's wrong before God and you know what? Bad stuff can happen to you. Don't be deceived. God's not mocked. Whatever a man sows, he reaps. I mean, there's no way to get around that. Do what is well, you'll be blessed. Do what is wrong, and guess what? You're going to pay a price. That's exactly what he said. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. And for this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them and said, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. My father is working until now, and even I am working. Now you think, you go, well, what's the big deal? Well, I'll tell you what the big deal is, and that's this. Jesus was basically claiming at this point to be God. That's what he was saying. My father's working, I am working. And, and, I, and the reason that we know that is, very simply, for this cause, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because he not only was breaking the Sabbath but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. He wasn't saying, my father, whom I am a descendant of. He's saying, my father, who I am equal to. If you've seen me, you've seen the father. He's also claiming to be equal with God. God is working. I am working because I am God. They knew what he said. That's why they picked up stones and they were going to kill him. Constantly, that's what took place. He said, my God. In John chapter 10, a couple of chapters ahead, look at verses 28 through 33. We find the same scene. It says, and I give eternal life to them and they shall never perish and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and nobody is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. The Jews therefore took up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered and said, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, for a good work we don't stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, just being a man, make yourself out to be God. It was very evident to them what he claimed, that he was God. In John chapter 11, if you recall, the, if you turn ahead another chapter, if you recall the response that Martha gave. She says in verse 23, Jesus, Jesus said to him, your brother shall rise again, speaking of Lazarus. And Martha, Martha said, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. And everyone who, who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, 
not technon, but huios, the son of God, even he who comes into the world. I have believed that. You are the savior of the world and you are the son of God, equal to God. You are God in human flesh. I have come to believe that. In Matthew chapter 16, read it sometime when you have an opportunity. Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? Oh, you're a prophet. Oh, wait, here, let's go through the list. Oh, you're a prophet. You're one of many gods. You're one of 124,000 prophets, according to Islam. Um, you're an enlightened man. You're a perfect man. Um, you know, you're a guru. You're a rabbi. You're a teacher. You're, you're all these things. That's what everybody's saying about you. But he made it very personal, and he said, but who do you, Peter, who do you say that I am? And he said that you are the Christ the son of the living God, even he who comes into the world. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. He said, you are God, and Jesus said, you are correct. The son of God. When the Bible says that Jesus is the son of God, it's referring to his position and equality with the father. He's the heir of all things. He is never called the once. He is never called the born one of God or the child of God. He is the son of God, the heir equal with the father in every way. That's why the Jews wanted to kill him because they understood clearly what he was saying. He is also called in the Bible, the Lord. And you will have a savior Born unto this day in Bethlehem, who is what? Who is Christ, the Lord. He is the Lord. The problem here is the word Lord in Greek is kyrios, which simply is a common word referring uh, not only in the Bible, but also in Greco-Roman society, it referred often to an earthly Lord. It was as if somebody was saying, sir, or you know, it was, it was, a, it was an address of respect that was used of a servant to his master. You know, sir, uh, what, you know, that's what, Lord, can I get you something, whatever. And so and as we look at the Greek language, we realize that that word was common. And so therefore people say, but you know, what but Jesus has never called the Lord and yet at the same time that shows an ignorance of scripture because he is called the Lord turn with me in Romans chapter 10 Acts Romans chapter 10 and we see a very critical passage as it relates to the question that I asked at the beginning who is Jesus and what difference does it make and the question I want to ask of you is who do you say that Jesus is and in Romans 10, we're given an answer. As Paul writes to the Romans, he says in verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the man he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon him. For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. When you and I believe in Jesus Christ, we are believing in who he is, that he is Lord, that he is God in human flesh. And without that acknowledgement, we're told clearly there is no salvation, period. This is why it makes an eternal difference as to who you believe Jesus is. This is why it matters what one believes about Jesus. 
You know, you're not merely believing that Jesus existed. You're not merely believing that he was crucified on a cross. You're not merely believing that he rose again from the dead. You are believing that he is God and your only savior from sin, death, and hell. In Romans, if you look at that verse in verse 12, it says, for there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all. Now, as you read this, you think, well, does that passage demand that I believe that Jesus is the God of the Bible? And the answer is yes, it does. And the reason for it is clearly shown because the apostle Paul quotes from verse 30 in the book of Joel as we see this. And he says in verse 30 of of the book of Joel in chapter 2, it says, And I will show you wonders in the heavens and the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. That's the Hebrew word Yahweh or Jehovah. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls upon the name of Jehovah shall be saved. The word that Paul uses is the same word that's used in the prophecy that I just indicated, and that is whoever calls upon Jehovah shall be saved. Meaning that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, Jehovah, the God of the Bible, shall be saved. When Paul quotes this passage from Joel in Romans 10 and says whoever calls upon the name of the Lord, that's what he's talking about. Whoever calls upon Jehovah shall be saved. We see it again in Acts chapter 2 when you have a chance. Look at this on your own, verses 21 through 36. Also in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, and compared to Isaiah 45, we see that there is no way to get around the fact that Jesus Christ is the Lord Jehovah of the Bible. God the Father has given him a name above every other name. That the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is what? Is the Lord. Is Jehovah to the glory of God. What we believe and understand about Jesus Christ is so crucial. The Bible teaches it's a matter of eternal life or eternal punishment. And the personal question that I must ask is this. Is he your Lord today? you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Jehovah God in human flesh. He is also called the Lord of glory. And in 1 Corinthians 2 verses 7 through 8, Jesus is referred to as the Lord of glory. Paul said this, he said, if you would have known who he was, you wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. Do you realize that you put God to death upon the cross? If you knew who he was, you wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory, tying into Psalm 24. An understanding of scripture is critical to an understanding of the revelation of God as he wants himself to be known to us. The Lord of glory, Messiah, the glory of God meant even more to Jewish people because they understood what it meant that God was, a, was the Lord of glory. See, glory, and, and this is why it's so critical to salvation, and that's this, For all have sinned and what? And fallen short of the glory of God. The perfection of God, the attributes of God reveal to man the glory, the awesomeness of God. An example of that is that when when the Israelites were leaving uh, Egypt during the Exodus, Moses was told by God to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. Pharaoh refused to do it. 
And the Lord of glory revealed his attributes through miraculous uh, uh, signs that he performed in front of Pharaoh to soften his heart to see that what Moses said was true. But Pharaoh refused to believe and, and accept the signs that were from God. And it says that he hardened his heart to the point where then God hardened his heart over so that there was no turning back. The Lord of glory revealed who he was, and they refu he refused to believe it. Now, the reason that I bring that up is that the Lord of glory is the name that's used of God as we look at Yahweh. Jesus in John chapter 8 said this of himself at one critical point. He said to those who were doubting who he was, he said, even before Abraham existed, I am Yahweh. I'm the one who sent Moses to Pharaoh to say, let my people go. The one you read about, Yahweh, I'm him. And if you don't believe that they understood it, the next verse says they picked up stones again to kill him. You claim to be equal to God. Here you go again. Jesus Christ was crucified for blasphemy making himself equal to God. He was innocent of those charges because what he said about himself is true. He is God, Yahweh. The discourse on, the, on God's glory, read it in John chapter eight, it's, it's incredible as he reveals through his own signs. What I just read, remember earlier in John, at the end of the gospel of John, it says that all these signs Jesus did in order that they would believe upon him. The whole purpose of, you know, of raising somebody who's never walked and opening the eyes of somebody who is blind and opening the ears of someone who is deaf. If you remember, John the Baptist was, in, was doubting whether Jesus was who he thought he was, the Savior, the promised one, the prophet of God, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And as he was struggling and he was depressed and he was in prison, he began to doubt whether that was true or not. He sent his disciples to go ask Jesus, are you the one or should we be looking for someone else? And what Jesus told John the Baptist, John the Baptist's disciples to go back and tell John was very simple. He said this, you go back and tell John that the eyes of the blind are opened, the ears of the deaf can hear, the lame can walk, the dead are raised. And the whole purpose of him telling that is because the word of God had promised that when the Messiah came, he would be able to do those things that no man in the history of the world had ever done. It was to affirm his claims of being who he claims to be, God in human flesh. He is called the Lord of glory. He is called the Holy One. In Acts chapter 3, verse 14, it says, But you denied the Holy One and the One who is just. The term Holy One is used in Isaiah 48, 17, where it says, Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord thy God. The Redeemer, Jesus Christ, is our Redeemer. The Holy One, Jesus Christ. It says, that I am the Holy One. The Redeemer, I am the Lord thy God. Hosea 11.9 says, For I am God, not man, the Holy One in your midst. The Jews understood this very sacred name of God and that Peter recognized that Jesus Christ is the Messiah who they had denied and put to death. He said, You have put to death the Holy One of God. That's why when they were convicted of this sin, think about this, they're listening to this, and he's saying, Hey, you put God to death. You know what their response was? What must we do to be saved? Saved from what? Saved from the wrath of God. You put God to death. 
You couldn't have done it if it wasn't the plan of God because no man could do anything to God that God doesn't allow. God allowed it because it was the plan of God from the foundation of the world to redeem mankind back to himself. But the point is still that man was held responsible by God for what they did. The sovereignty of God, the free will of man, the responsibility of man to do what's right before God. It's a beautiful symmetry all throughout the Bible. God is in control of all things and yet at the same time he holds you and I accountable for what we choose to do. But what he was saying is, wow, he goes, look at this. You put God to death. And they fell on their knees and said, what must I do to be saved? We put God to death. We put Jesus Christ to death because of our sins. When Adam and Eve sinned, sin entered the world. And you and I fall short of the glory of God. There's none of us who are righteous, no, not one. You and I put Jesus Christ, God, to death. They said, what must I do? What must we do to be saved from the wrath of God? Peter's response indicated that he already knew their hearts. Number one, they recognized their guilt before God. Yeah, they did that. Number two, they also threw themselves upon the mercy of God. And, they, and he recognized that. You know what he told them to do at that point? He said, it's by God's grace through faith that you believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord Jehovah God. Believe upon him and you shall be saved. That was his answer. What must I do to be saved from the wrath of God that's to come and judgment for sin? First, you gotta recognize you're a sinner, that you put him to death. Your sin put Jesus Christ to death on the cross. And because of that, you should fall upon your knees and face and throw yourself upon the mercy of God. And then by grace through faith, believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. That was his answer. And that's still God's answer today. And lastly, we see that he is called the first and the last. In the book of Revelation, Jesus Christ calls himself the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega. In Isaiah 44, 6, it says, Thus said the Lord God, King of all Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. God said, I am the first, and I am the last, and besides me, there is no God. Jesus Christ said, I am the first, and I am the last. I am the Alpha, and I am the Omega. I am the God of the universe, the creator of all things. John chapter 1. In closing, as we look forward to celebrate this Christmas, we do so with an answer to the question, who is Jesus? Jesus Christ is God, the second person of the Trinity. He has always existed and was never created. He is fully God and fully man, though the two natures never mix. As the second person of the Trinity is co-equal with God the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father and of the Holy Spirit. And in becoming man, he was begotten through the Holy Spirit and born of a virgin. He is not the descendant of God. He is not the son of God from that standpoint. But he is a son of God in position as equal to God and an inheritor, an inheritance of all things. Jesus is the only way to the Father. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes unto the Father but through me. He is the only way of salvation. He is the only way of eternal life. He died on a cross according to God's plan, according to Scripture, as full sacrifice and payment for our sins. 
He rose from the dead again on the third day, we're told, spiritually and physically. For the next 40 days, the Bible tells us he walked upon the face of the earth and he was witnessed there by over 500 and more people who saw him and heard him continue to teach, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. He was touched. He ate meals. He physically ascended to heaven. Jesus will come again physically, visibly, at the end of the world to establish God's kingdom upon this earth and to judge the world of sin. And of his kingdom, the Bible says, it will have no end. What difference does it make as to who you say that he is? The Bible says if we confess that Jesus Christ is God in human flesh, that it's essential for our salvation. If he's not God, he can't forgive sin. And remember what Jesus said when he asked a man, what's easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or take up this pallet and walk? They said, well, it's easy to say your sins are forgiven. He goes, well, in order to know that I can forgive sin, take up your pallet and walk. Only God can forgive sin. Because in the end, only sin is an offense to a mighty and holy and perfect and righteous God. And since we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, it's necessary that we go to God and seek his forgiveness. See, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, Jehovah, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. In Philippians 2, as I mentioned, Paul presents this remarkable conclusion about Jesus Christ. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue will confess of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, that he is Lord to the glory of God. The question that is asked at this point is, have you confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord, both God and man, and your only Savior from sin, death and hell? Who do you say that Jesus is? Who is he to you personally? See, there's salvation and no other, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which men must be saved. And in closing, John writes a warning in 1 John chapter 4, and he writes this. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, God in human flesh, is of God. And every spirit that denies and does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. A sobering reality of what I've just shared with you is that every other group in the world that I mentioned who is mistaken as to the identity of Jesus Christ is lost and on the road to hell. The reality of that message should spur within each one of us a burden for people, even from the very jungles of Brea, California, that have never heard this wonderful message that has been entrusted to you and I. Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, the only Savior the world will ever know. God became man. The Word was God, and the Word became flesh, and the Word dwelt among us. God was manifested in the flesh, 1 Timothy 3, and we beheld his glory, glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and full of truth. God became man, and either you believe that or you don't, you must decide 
and at stake is your eternity. Father, we thank you for your word and the truth of your word. God, I pray for those who are here today that may have mistakenly identified Jesus as a good man, a prophet, a teacher, a head of some religious movement, some historical figure with no practical relevance for today, that today you would convict their hearts that he is indeed God in human flesh, that he is the only Savior this world will ever know. There's no other name given under heaven by which men can be saved. Jesus Christ, the Word, became flesh and dwelt among us. The significance of Christmas is that God took on human flesh in the form and the person of Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, Jehovah God, Yahweh, I am, the God of eternity, the only God that there is. Hear, O Israel, and hear all people, and know this, that the Lord is one, and you shall have no other gods before him. God, I pray for those who are here that don't know you personally, that they would recognize they fall short of the glory of God, your perfection, your righteousness, and that they would throw themselves upon your mercy, and that they would believe what your word says. If we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness, and with his mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Lord, we thank you that we can focus our attention upon this truth and be able to answer the question as it is asked of those around us, who is Jesus Christ and what difference does it make? And we just thank you and praise you in his name. Amen.